What is going on, everybody, and welcome to episode 53 of the Mental Dive Podcast, where we talk anything and everything sports psychology and mental performance. I'm your host, Taylor Staden. On today's episode, I had the absolute pleasure of being joined by Mac Marku. And before I get into the interview with him, I want to highlight a few key areas that we touched on to give you a bit of a taste of what you're going to hear during this interview. And one specific area that I thought was really interesting was his thoughts and his perspectives on the power of goal setting. Uh, you know, we we often say to ourselves, okay, I'm going to set a goal and I, and I want to achieve it. Setting the goal is actually often the easy part. And Mac actually talks a lot about how he focuses on fun and progression and how he allows success to be a, a product of that, how success tends to follow you being involved in your process and really having your, your time, energy, and resources invested in that. Um, because if we want to achieve an outcome, right, we want to be doing the things that help us get there, right? Just focusing solely on that outcome that we want to get is not very helpful. Understanding where we want to go is obviously helpful, but understanding how we're going to get there is where the the real value lies. And I really enjoyed that he that he brought that up, and it and it led in some good conversations, uh, as well as you know in paralpine skiing. And, and I'm no expert, but they ski with a guide. And what I found really interesting about Max experiences, and we get into this more during the actual conversation, but is that his guide was actually his brother. And then eventually making the transition to another guy. So we get into that. But then last but not least, I think it's really cool that we talked about, you know, learning from his experiences in Sochi in the 2014 Paralympic Games and how he leveraged those experiences to help him perform at his best and feel more comfortable and prepared going into the 2018 Pyeongchang Paralympic Games. But without further ado, let's bring Mac on to the episode. So today's guest is a Paralympic gold medalist, winning gold in Sochi in 2014 and Pyeongchang in 2018 in downhill and giant slalom alpine skiing. The five-time world champion is clearly known for chasing adrenaline as he continues to push his limits and defy the odds to become elite in his sport. I'm proud and happy to welcome the Sioux native to the Mental Dive podcast, Mac Marku. How are you doing today? I'm good, Taylor. Thanks for having me, man. Good. I appreciate it. Uh, how have you been lately? How's uh, the preparation going for Paralympics? It's been interesting for sure. It's been, uh, you know, like every sport, everything kind of everyone's schedule has been out of whack for the last year. And our training kind of has been, you know, kind of just take it where we can get it at this point. We've been doing a lot of training at home and a lot less racing than normal kind of a build up year towards the games. But it's uh, it's been as best case as it possibly could be at this point. Right. Making the most of the situation, I assume. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good, good. So, so Mac, one way I like to always start off the podcast is I love to learn a little bit more about your story and your background. You know, what's your why and what pushes you to put up with the adversities, pressures, and challenges along the way? Oh, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so I grew up in uh, Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, or just north of Sault Ste. Marie in uh, like a little community called Gooley River. And, uh, and kind of grew up far enough outside of town that I was pretty you know, we were pretty family oriented, not being able to kind of bounce back and forth to Sault Ste. Marie to play a bunch of sports and that sort of deal. So we kind of spent a lot of time um, uh, on motorsports. When we were kids, we spent a lot of time dirt biking and snowmobiling and uh, racing go-karts at a young age. And, uh, and kind of when I turned eight years old, my vision started to deteriorate uh, due to a disease called Stargardt. So 
I lost uh, all my central vision and left me with 6% in my peripheral as of right now. And um, it's just kind of shifted kind of our whole family dynamic. When we were kids, it went from racing go-karts and stuff. My parents immediately started looking into sports for visually impaired athletes and um, something that the whole family could kind of get involved in and continue to kind of do together. And um, we stumbled across ski racing. Um, hadn't really ever heard of ski racing before, um, you know, other than like seeing the able-bodied side on the news, but para, the para-alpine world was uh, kind of a new idea to us and didn't really know it was out there and uh, we kind of got in touch with Alpine Canada and had some videos sent our way of a former teammate of mine Chris Williamson who was kind of like wrote the book on visually impaired skiing and uh, he um, you know got in touch with us a little bit and we had reached out to some other athletes like the McKeever brothers and other athletes kind of with the same diseases I had just kind of more so for peace of mind for my parents, just like kind of reaching out and kind of finding out what was in store for us for the next, you know, rest of our lives pretty much. And, uh, and yeah, so we, we kind of got some videos of uh, Chris and it looked like a lot of fun ski racing. So we uh, jumped in with two feet and joined the local uh, ski club in Sault Ste. Marie. It was search one ski runners. And, uh, and we started kind of just, feeling it out we thought we'd give it give one season to go we skied as a family just for fun kind of growing up beforehand we had night skied at a really uh, small now uh, abandoned ski hill but it's uh it, yeah we skied at a little ski hill on Tuesdays and Thursday nights and um figured ski racing looked like it would be a lot of fun so we jumped in and um kind of immediately fell in love with the sport and um you know we had a really great little community around us at Searchmont and it was uh it was a lot of fun and it kind of just started to snowball from there. I raced able-bodied in Northern Ontario for four years, five years even, <laughs> mm. until uh, my vision had deteriorated enough that I felt it was necessary to start skiing with a guide. Um, so I started kind of training with my brother in 2011 as my guide. And um, we just trained with the able-bodied club and kind of figured out how to ski together in the same course. And um, it took a lot, of, a lot of learning and trials and errors. And, uh, we, uh, we eventually had it kind of figured out enough that at the end of that season, we were aimed out to Kimberly, BC for, um, uh, like the para nationals just to see kind of where we'd stack up against the rest of the, the rest of the para crew. You know, we hadn't really seen or been around anyone else in the uh, para alpine world. So, um, we ended up going out to nationals and, um, we ended up, you know, having some pretty good success. And I think we came home with some medals and um, turned some heads with, uh, with the national um, prospect team. So we started skiing with the development crew kind of right out of 2011. And it just kind of took off from there, you know, 2012, 13, we spent a whole um, season just kind of, I guess, 2011, 2012 season, we spent that whole season kind of bouncing around North America to NORAM races and, you know, just getting, um, familiar with the para-alpine world and uh and then the 12-13 season was our kind of our world cup debut and uh we kind of went on a trip by trip basis and uh it kind of led us right nicely into 2014 where we qualified for the games and it was uh yeah it was crazy it was like those four years just flew by <laughs> and uh <laughs> and before we knew it we were kind of standing in line um you know within a couple months out of the games and just leading into 2014 and my brother had retired in 2016 I skied with uh Jack Leach for 20 
17, 2018. And, um, and now we're in another four year block. So it's crazy kind of looking back and thinking yeah. about the last eight, 10 years and how fast it's kind of gone by. And we're already in our, uh, lead up to Beijing 2022. It's, uh, it kind of blows my mind. Yeah. hundred percent. And I feel like there's so much to unpack there too. One thing I love to mention is the Northern Ontario connection. I actually studied at Laurentian university for the past four years. So it's, uh, it's nice to connect with, uh, you know, someone from the Sioux and I'm sure you did a lot of skiing over in Sudbury too, no? Yeah. Yeah. I'm growing like racing kind of in the Northern Ontario division. We skied around Sudbury and North Bay and kind of Timmins, the Sioux and Thunder Bay and just kind of bounced around Northern Ontario a bunch. (laughs) Nice. Right on. And one thing you mentioned is, um, you know, when, when you're young, you started to qualify for certain events and at the age of 15 years old, you won three golds at the IPC Alpine skiing world cup. What was this experience like for you having so much success at an early age and how did you kind of maybe try to keep a level head throughout the process? Um, I think a lot of it was had to do with goal setting for, for myself and my brother at that point, we were, we looked a lot more towards, um, progression than we did kind of results-based goals um so as long as we were feeling good and and you know within the within our training within racing we were we were progressing we were kind of happy and I think that Mm kind of led us into a very kind of different approach than I guess lots of athletes look at and they'll set a goal um you know say a couple years out or from like four years prior to the next games they know kind of exactly where they want to be at the next games if they can um, if they can get themselves there. And I think, um, I've never really, I've never really been kind of about the results-based goals at all and just kind of set things on having fun and trying to continue to progress and in skiing and, um, the kind of success had come along with that. And, um, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was a really cool kind of different approach, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I love that approach though, of focusing on your, on your process and progression instead of of the outcome because that's something I, I preach to a lot of athletes I work with is that it's not that outcomes don't matter obviously we want to win gold medals and, and, be, and come first place but the more you focus on your process and focus less on the outcomes the more likely you are to achieve the outcomes you want to achieve it's really interesting the way that dynamic works yeah exactly if you focus on the process and trust the process it uh it is put in place and like hopefully as an athlete you've worked with you know you're snc coach and your snow on snow coaches and your our uh, mental training coaches to kind of set a process in place to kind of breed success in a way mm-hmm. um that it's just more so like it's in, very individualized but for if you can learn to trust that process and just kind of roll with the punches and it's kind of lots of ups and downs but um the less i kind of focus on the results the, mm-hmm. the better it seems to go for the most part yeah. How do you trust the process then? Like what's, how do you maybe try to stay on track when it's really, really tempting to maybe focus really on those outcomes? Uh, a lot of it, it's evolved over the years. Um, you know, as I've become more veteran of an athlete and I've spent a lot more time racing world cup and being around the circuit, it's, uh, it's changed from, you know, when I was 15 years old and the idea was every day was just to like, take in as much as you can and learn and look at all of the kind of the veterans in the, in the sport and do what they're doing or try to figure out what they're doing and see how we could implement that in our own training. And, um, kind of as I got older and it's still as much watching and, and learning from 
kind of our competitors and teammates, but a lot more, um, it's a lot more mental and physical at this point. Um, you know, as you get beaten and battered over the years, it's, uh, the process tends to be a lot more, um, rehab and maintenance based, try and keep a hold of the body and make sure that my body's in the best state possible. Cause you know, when I was 15, nothing could, nothing could hurt me. And, <laughs> <laughs> and over the years, it's slowly, uh, it gets to the point where, you know, there's always going to be, you know, just long lasting injuries that, um, you have to really pay attention to. So a lot more, um, time spent with my S and C and physio. And, uh, we kind of just really hone in on making sure that kind of the body can make it through a whole season. I have a lot of like kind of back issues. So, uh, a couple of herniated discs and it's kind of just constantly making sure that that's in the best state possible so that I can focus on trading and not be worried about being hurt and that sort right. of deal. Yeah. I love, I love that approach. It makes a lot of sense. So you, you started off in able-bodied racing and then you eventually transitioned into para alpine and you mentioned that your brother was your guide when you start off, what was this dynamic and relationship like between you and your brother? Because I mean, I love my brother, but I don't know if I would trust him <laughs> to help me with the sport, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, no, me and, me and BJ had a very interesting, uh, interesting relationship growing up, you know, like we were out of town enough that, you know, we spent every day and every night kind of playing together. He was three years older than me and it was, uh, He's the, was kind of the only kid on the block. So we had, we kind of pushed each other and grew up just kind of thriving off each other. And then it kind of transitioned into go-kart racing. And my brother was a little bit older than me and a little bit better. And it kind of was the same way. It was always just trying to beat your older brother. And it kind of made a really good environment to be in when we started kind of training and racing together. So we ski raced able-bodied both in Northern Ontario. Uh, he was in an age division above me when we were in able-bodied and it was still kind of, you know, constantly trying to get as close as you can to your big brother. And, you know, you try and, you try and show him up right. if you can. But uh, as we kind of transitioned and he started um, guiding me, it was a lot more, um, you know, we had to learn how to grow up pretty fast and not, you know, be 14, 13 year old kid and a 16 year old kid that just, you know, we were around um, a lot of athletes that we looked up to and we had to try to do the best we could to, kind of fit into the, a much older crowd. So we, uh, yeah, we kind of just held each other kind of reined in a little bit yeah. as best we could. And, uh, and it kind of made a really cool dynamic on the skill because we had already spent so much time together growing up and, and yeah. we already had a really kind of close bond as brothers that we, we trained really well together. And you know what, like a lot of people say you must've been at each other's throats and a lot of time we were, um, <laughs> But it's, it's cool because, you know, when it is your brother, you could be arguing and be mad and then just flip the switch, go back to ski racing, True. train, be able to have a productive training session and then be mad at each other again or like kind of get it resolved <laughs> real quick. You know, it's not something that stays around for a long time. Um, so we were able to resolve conflict really fast and uh, we ended up just having a blast after, after the first couple of years. It was just, you know, it's how does it get much better than traveling the world with your brother doing what you love to do? We, uh, sure. yeah, we had, uh, we had some really amazing experiences. And I think looking back now, like after my brother retired, we're a lot closer now <laughs> than we, than we were when we were skiing and training together and staying in the same hotel rooms all over the place. And, yeah. um, 
yeah, it's pretty cool. Like when we look back at it and just kind of look at the opportunities that we had to together and, and the mm -hmm. kind of fun and, and the kind of success that came from just being able to travel and have fun and feed off each other for all those years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. And I, I like how you mentioned the fact that you, you and him already having a relationship for so long really helped that process in terms of maybe being able to trust each other and to have that really strong bond. When you think about your experiences in using a guide originally with your brother, and you mentioned how you moved on to um, a new guide since you retired, what role does trust play in that relationship between you and your guide? It, it can be a really big, it's a big factor. Uh, um, obviously like I'm trusting him to relay, uh, information that he is seeing back to me so that I can make, um, decisions behind him along with, um, after trusting his in actually his skiing, his line, there's a lot more to it than just the, you know, the communication that we have on the hill. I, I pay a lot of attention to, um, you know, whoever's skiing in front of me, their body movements, how they're reacting to certain terrain, um, what's happening under their feet. Like I look a lot at their legs and watch kind of how the micro terrain affects their feet so that I could know what's going on. Um, so a lot of it is, a lot of it is trust, but there's also like a full 180 where like, you don't really have another option when you're skiing with a new guide, you either kind of trust them and do what they're doing or you kind of fend for yourself and fending for yourself when, uh, when you can't see too good, doesn't usually fare out. So, um, you kind of just put all your eggs in one basket and hope for the best. And, right. um, fortunately I've, I've been, uh, lucky to have, you know, some amazing guides over the years and, um, I've never had a problem, you know, it takes uh, usually about a camp to kind of get things dialed in and we spend uh, as much time on snow and we, we stay together in the same room outside of skiing. So we get to know each other really well. And right. um, every guide transition has gone um, really smoothly. And I've been, yeah, super lucky that way. Good. That's awesome. And kind of, I guess, taking a step back, at what point did you realize that you, you had to make the transition from able-bodied racing into paraskiing? Um, it it kind of just was, it was along with age um, and my vision deteriorating. Um, mm -hmm. So you have to be of, a certain age to be able to compete in the para world. Um, and at that kind of same point, my vision had deteriorated enough that it just made sense to ski with a guide. You know, I was um, losing a lot of gates in my blind spot and having issues uh, with that. So we figured, you know, it was, it just made sense. And um, yeah, like looking back to it, I, it's hard to remember. I remember my parents like being like, all right, well, this is a season. We'll, we'll order some radios online. And ordered some radios and then we spent you know the first month just trying to figure out how the headsets worked because <laughs> we're right, yeah. you know not the most tech savvy crew so we're figuring <laughs> it out um and then it was just kind of a constant you know learning curve and trying to figure out it so kind yeah. of it's a big difference when you jump in right behind somebody in a course compared to when you're used to skiing on your own so it uh yeah it changed things up a little bit and kept it interesting and kept us super kind of uh, motivated to you know get into something new and and figure it out the best we could love that love that so you often um hear you know everyone asks and, and thinks how can somebody train and put up with all the adversity for four years just for a few defining moments 
So for you, for you, Mac, how do you, how have you stuck to your prep and grind when you prepare for the Paralympic games, all those long hours, long days, injuries along the way for, like I said, those few defining moments of excellence. Uh, honestly, a lot of it has to just come back to, you know, feeling like a little kid, a little bit, continuing to have fun doing what you love to do. You know, if you put a lot of pressure on four years out from the games and you kind of break it down kind of like, like the way you did with, you know, you have a few defining moments. And in reality, like, even though we have five events in the Paralympics with ski racing, like you have a total of like, you're lucky to get 10 minutes of actual you know, full pin <laughs> and uh, yeah. like you're more so sitting around the six, seven minutes of like you work four years for six, seven minutes. Um, but if you can kind of stay focused on just having fun and um, like we talked about earlier, just trusting the process. And um, a lot of it, like I said, has evolved a little bit, like, you know, from when I was a little kid and just getting after it and every day, just charging as hard as I could and trying to get more runs in every athlete on the team and just, you know, trying to just train, 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 and just do the best you can because you're still in the process of just absorbing and learning so much about the sport. Um, and now, so it's more trying to make a game plan four years out to know that and just be able to stay motivated throughout that four years, you know, like there's lots of ups and downs and especially in this last block, you know, it's been, it's been crazy with, with the last year and a bit um, kind of throwing a wrench in, in a, what would be a fairly normal training and racing program. So it's, uh, it's, yeah, just finding ways to stay interested and motivated. And I do a lot of kind of sports outside of ski racing, just to kind of make sure that I stay motivated in ski racing. You know, if you do the same thing every day for four years, I'm sure by the end of it, you're just gonna just be over it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that like, if I can stay entertained in a bunch of different areas, then it allows me to stay really focused when I am focused on ski racing. So, um, yeah, just kind of being able to stay busy and have fun doing you doing what you do makes it really easy to kind of create that buildup. And then before you know it, you know, you're standing, walking through the, the gates of the athletes village before, <laughs> and, uh, that's kind of what it all sets in a little bit. Um, even like the last year leading up to the games, we had a meeting a little while ago, just just talk about Beijing and um, kind of our buildup. And, you know, right then when you start to get the butterflies, <laughs> you know that it's uh, it's coming fast and it's kind of a reality check. And it kind of happens probably once a month for the next six, seven months. And then mm -hmm. you think about it kind of every day. So just being able to stay distracted and having fun, it keeps it uh, keeps it light. And, right. And, uh, and exciting. Yeah. And then, yeah, I love what you mentioned about having other sports you play and having other interests. That's something that I've been um, really learning more about lately. And I, I think is really important is just that if we want to stay mentally fresh, sometimes the best thing we can do for our performance in sport is to get away from our sport, <laughs> you know, exactly. like, exactly. yeah, exactly. just check out a little bit and kind of put all of your time and energy into one thing that has probably nothing to do with your sport like it, it most of my kind of hobbies cross over a little bit just by their uh they're really good cross training sports like I spent a mm -hmm. lot of time uh downhill mountain biking and um snowmobiling and free skiing is a really big hobby so just being mm -hmm. able to play play outside in a bunch of different aspects allows you to come back to ski racing fresh and 
ready to kind of get after it. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned how really, so these four years of preparation, and you could even argue longer because of all the years you put in before that to get to that point are for (laughs) four to seven minutes, 10, if you're lucky, right? So when you're, when you prepare this much, you obviously want to have every competitive advantage you can get to make the most of that opportunity and when it matters most. How do you maybe leverage the quote unquote mental game to get an effective state of mind ahead of a race? Uh, A lot of it has to, for me, I, in order to be kind of in the right mindset coming into a race, I have to have a kind of a good warm up is the biggest thing, but kind of, if you train to race and race to train and kind of live off of that kind of idea, then the more ducks you have in a row in a training environment makes it very seamless when you go into a race environment. So if you practice every day, the same, same kind of race routine, like you're going to have when you kind of, whether you're, you know, playing around at an ORM race and you're just jumping in for, uh, for a couple extra starts in the year, or you're jumping into the start gate, the Olympics, if you train that same way every day, starting from when you wake up and you do the same thing, you have the same, very similar warm-up. It doesn't have to be exactly the same, but just being able to have kind of all that dialed in so that you know that everything's taken care of before you get in that start gate so that, you know, when, you know, when you do kick out of the start and you have your, you know, minute and a half downhill run ahead of you, and that's all there is, everything's done leading up to that point. And all you have to do is kind of trust that you've had the preparation and you know how to do what you're about to do. And, um, along with, you know, a lot of visualization and that sort of deal, you know, lots of, lots of tracks. We spent a lot of time uh, learning how to visualize the best we can and have a really good mental picture of our track before we get into it. And, um, yeah, it's just kind of trust the preparation at that point. Right. Yeah. And again, I, I think you brought up so many important points. One, you, you mentioned how you want to have all as many ducks in a row as possible in order for you to feel prepared. Cause I think that preparation is one of our greatest sources of confidence. One, exactly. mainly because it's, it's within our control. We can, for the most part, control what our preparation looks like and how well we stick to our process. So really at the end of the day, when you say, talk about trusting yourself um, and, and just letting it carry out, having being able to to lean on that preparation and say to yourself i've honestly taken all the steps i can to prepare myself and the rest is really just up to me uh to carry it out but another thing i really like that you mentioned was the fact that the way you practice is actually really important for the way you perform and i think that's why there's so many good practice players per se that can't transition it into a competitive game environment And I think part of that is because they don't practice similar enough to the competition environment and they maybe go through the motions. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I'd have to agree. Like a a lot of people change a lot of things up when it gets to a race, especially when it gets to an important race. Um, You know, something that they're really passionate about or something they've been thinking about for a long time. They'll, they'll almost do more or do too much leading into the game, leading into that race, that game, whatever it is. And they'll, you know, you train and you're so strong in a training environment because you have a routine that you get after for, and, you know, especially in ski racing, we start training on snow in August and we don't usually race till either late December or January. Um, so you spend all this time building a routine every day. Um, when you're on snow, you build this kind of prep 
starting from like your morning warm up and then your warm up on snow and then you know your inspection everything has to be kind of similar and when you do that in training and it's similar and it's a little bit lighter feeling like you keep it light keep it fun a lot more people you have this really productive training session after training session you end up being a really strong athlete in training but as soon as you get into a race you kind of almost overthink it and jump in too hard and you think you think too hard and you overdo kind of all of your prep work that you've been training and doing for the last you know however many months or years and it just kind of throws you a little bit of a wrench it brings up nerves the anxiety gets high and it uh it just doesn't make a calm fun environment in order to be productive you know yeah for sure and when you when you think about those pre-race nerves and those jitters you obviously competed in different types of events like giant slalom downhill super g for you do you want to have a different kind of level of nerves leading up to each different kind of race or are they all pretty similar for you across all the events uh they're all pretty similar and honestly the nerves come a lot from the kind of momentum built coming into that race um if they're if we're running on a you know good positive momentum and it's been you know, a very productive season. Uh, the nerves are a lot less, but they come, they come back in when, you know, you see, you have that return to snow and I've spent a lot of time kind of rehabbing and returning to snow over the last couple of years. And, um, you know, every time you get back in a first race, you're a lot more stressed out, but I think between disciplines and as long as we're in a really good spot, um, nothing really changes much between the nerves. You know, we kind of, it's the same idea, no matter if it's GS or it's downhill, it's just um, downhill, maybe a little bit less nervous just because it's a like personally a stronger event and it's a lot more fun. Like for me, it's something that I really gel with and it's uh, I'm really passionate about the speed racing. Um, but um, yeah, it's kind of the same across the board and it just has to do with kind of the positive momentum built kind of prior leading into it, you know, with the races earlier that season, the, the training leading up to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I, was, I just wasn't sure if maybe you like to be a little more fired up before one type of race in, instead of another, because I feel like across different sports, some athletes may feel that way, but it's also very individualized. So it's interesting to hear how, how you approach that. But when you think about, think back to your times winning gold in Sochi in 2014 and Pyeongchang in 2018, what was your lead up to this? What was going through your mind before, during, and after these races? I'd love to hear your, your perspective from uh, your experiences. Um, before races, uh, you know, it was crazy. Even like the, the difference and the contrast between Sochi and Pyeongchang, I think just in Sochi, it was, everything was so new. And um, my brother ended up not being able to compete. So there was a, there was a big kind of curveball thrown at, us just leading in you know he was a weird a week and a half two weeks out and he had uh he had some kind of lasting back issues as well like very similar to mine with some herniated discs and um he ended up you know tossing his back out like two weeks before the games wasn't able to compete so it was weirdly it took off a lot of pressure (laughs) uh in a sense you know we worked together and raced together and we had kind of built up this kind of mental image of what this game was going to be and what we wanted from it. And as soon as kind of BJ got tossed out and I started skiing with Rob, you know, a week prior and I'd skied with Rob Femi a little bit beforehand, but um, it took off a lot of exterior pressures and made it, you know, we were here 
we're just going to do the best we can with what we got. We haven't really trained together much. Um, let's just kind of wing it and see where we end up, you know, like leading up to the, to the games. And, you know, in the start gate, it's always a very similar feel. You're kind of just numb and you're kind of going through all the, all the little things. And, you know, you're maybe do one extra visualization just while you're waiting in the start gate and uh, just trying to be as ready as possible. But um, the after, the after effect is, is pretty crazy. You get like this, um, you know, a lot of people talk about like an Olympic or a Paralympic hangover where you're, you, you do set goals and, and, you know, leading in and you're, you're kind of focused on this, this games for four years, whether like it's kind of in the back of your mind all the time, like as much as you try not to, not to think about it and just kind of go day by day. And I try not to set very results-based goals, but it's something that's kind of always sitting there and it's always hanging over your head. So as soon as you finish the games, you have this like excitement depending on how you know how the results went and if you had ended up having a good games or you're come home just so stoked and kind of fired up but you don't really know what to do with that energy because you're now you're kind of reassessing your whole kind of goal set like you if you don't really think about what's coming after the games it's hard to it's hard to really put that into words when you do come home and you kind of wind down from a very intense year usually and you're thinking about you know, what, all right, what next? Like you have to really flip that switch fast to stay kind of on track. And you just kind of think about like, what, what can I do next? What, where do I want to go from here? Um, and it's really can be really challenging, but it's, I've been fortunate enough to have kind of a decent mental picture after the, after the games of kind of where I want to go and what I'd like to do. So it's more so just trying to make sure that you can stay motivated. You know, a lot of people can, come home and you find yourself in a little bit of a slump for a little while. So um, I've definitely been guilty of that between world championships and, and Paralympics over the years. But um, yeah, I think it's just really important to, you know, focus and enjoy that success and enjoy, you know, the whole Paralympic experience is, is so incredible and just being able to, you know, take it all in and realize that like all the work you've done, you're, the fact that you're there is one thing. And um, if you can, leave there happy and um you know stoked on performance it's a it's a pretty overwhelming sense of pride when you're coming home it's just you know trying to find something to kind of stay in it when you get home and figure out what's next fast before you end up kind of just in that slump yeah absolutely and i i have to take a step back here because i'm really interested to know you mentioned that your brother getting ruled out of the paralympic games two weeks before took pressure off of you Mm-hmm. was this why was this was this because you felt <laughs> as if it, it wouldn't be as like detrimental if you were to not achieve your goal because you had a kind of something to lean on or what what was this reason here I, honestly I it, I think it was a little bit of that it was a little bit like just expectations had like kind of exterior expectations you know from people outside of in my head um, and you know like we had had a, a productive uh, World Cup season leading up to the games and you know we were skiing well and um, there was a lot of pressure kind of just from the outside world and you know we had probably built up a little bit of pressure in our heads too you know we were having a good season how do we keep this momentum going and um, I think when BJ got hurt it was kind of little like it, it was really brutal and and you know we trained a lot and, and for for many years leading up to that moment and to be kind of cut taking it 
away from the two of us um being able to race together was a little bit of a you know it was it was a little bit of a beat down but it also kind of opened up this opportunity for like the pressure to be released a little bit it was like someone opened up a valve and just took off a lot of stress and it was like hey like you know i was 16 i was already kind of in over my head <laughs> and uh and it was just something like whether it was mentally just flipping a little bit of a switch and just being able to come in kind of open-minded and not really knowing where we were going to end up, yeah. not knowing if it was going to work out. I think it just made it um, a little bit less stressful leading in. And I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, skiing with Rob. Rob was a really great guy and handled pressure really well. Uh, and he was just a phenomenal skier. So it wasn't as much, you know, knowing whether we were going to be able to ski together. It was just, you know, a little bit of that pressure release, you know, from Mac and BJ Mark who were training together all the time. And then it was like, Oh, BJ's injured. Kind of, what is he, what are you going to do? And it was kind of, we just talked all three of us sat down and talked about it. It was just like, go in, kind of give her and hope for the best. That's all you can do. And um, it made a, yeah, a little bit less stressful situation. Yeah. I, that's really interesting to me <laughs> how, how that all, how that all worked out. And then you have to then switch like, you're you're trying to prepare so much and schedule everything leading up to the Paralympic Games only for your training partner, your guide to to go down with an injury, and then you have to switch guides. I find that fascinating how that worked out for you. But when you think about your experiences in Sochi in 2014, how did you leverage those to help you in Pyeongchang in 2018? And how do you think your all your experiences are going to benefit you as you go into Beijing? Uh, I, a lot of it is just you kind of know what to expect now, you know, it's like, and it's more so surrounding the hype of the Paralympics, like uh, in the para world, we don't have a very, like, there's not a ton of hype around our world cup schedule for the most part, you know, it's not like we're coming down and there's big crowds of people. It's normally just family and coaches and whoever can kind of make it to a race. So it's usually, you know, there's 50 people in the finish line, something like that. And, uh, you know, you come down to the Paralympics and there's so much hype built around it. And there's, you know, we have these media events leading up to it and it's just like, there's so much going on. So for a 16 year old kid, I was freaking out. I was, uh, I was like, this is going to be way bigger, more intense than anything I've ever been a part of. And it is in a sense, just by, you know, coverage base and like coming down to a finish line, you go from having, you know, hundred, maybe 50 people in a finish line to like, you know, five, 6,000 people sitting in stands like ready. So there's a lot of like, just this weird pressure that can be put on um, just because it's surrounding the hype of the games. And I think after the first, first kind of go around you kind of look back and realize that, you know, if you kind of eliminate all of the, the hype that's built by media and, and, you know, things that are happening around you, it's still just a regular world cup. It's the same athletes you're racing against. It's all the same it's just a little bit more hype. So I think that was a really big takeaway from the 2014 games. Um, so when I was coming into 2018, I came in already a lot more level head and a lot less stressed out just cause I knew what to expect a little bit more with the surrounding pressure and the hype building um, coming up to the game. So it just made, uh, yeah, it made it a lot more seamless. It made it from a world cup to a, a uh, Paralympics. It, it felt a lot more similar. Um, and now leading into Beijing, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a little bit different. You know, we're still trying to figure out, we don't know what it's going to be like with the kind of world we live in right now. And it's um, more than likely going to be like a, 
regular world world cup when it comes to like you know having people around and that that height that's built you know it's hard to have you know all this crazy attention will come from the media but when you get there it's still going to be probably a little bit quiet and I'm not really sure what to expect I think if it was going to be a normal kind of a normal kind of year uh (laughs) it would uh yeah you'd know what to expect and it'd be very similar to Pyeongchang but I think this this one's going to be it's going to be different for everyone. So we're kind of, everyone's just kind of going in open-minded and yeah, um, I think just go in with expectations that you're going to go ski race and that's kind of it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Focus yeah. on what you can control, right? Stick to the, exactly. to the task at hand. So you mentioned now how having those past experiences helped you clear nerves. And you've also mentioned yeah. how you've used visualization to help you prepare for races is visualization another mental skill you've used to clear nerves or what has been the main benefit for you when you visualize? It is, it is definitely, um, it's definitely a skill that can help with nerves. Um, and it's more so just that, you know, when you feel prepared, the nerves are less when you feel like you're ready and you like every athlete has gotten to that point where they've been to a game or they started in a, I've stood in the start gate and been like, I'm ready. Like, I know, I know what's happening. I know exactly what the track looks like. I have a solid game plan with my guide. Like we're ready. We got like everything that we could do leading up to this point is done. Let's just go ski it. And I think when you do have a solid visualization and when you have a solid kind of plan of like, like that pre-race routine, and then you really focus on paying attention to the, the little details, road inspections and, um, training runs and especially in the downhill when it's a it's a lot faster higher stakes um and it's if you can kind of take in as much information as possible throughout those you know two three training runs and your inspections every day and you can have a clear mental image of what that racetrack looks like it's it's really helpful and (laughs) so you know when you're coming around the gate you know exactly what's going to happen next at least in the track you know it doesn't always go to plan and you have to always be able to like improvise and adapt, overcome kind of certain things that happen, you know, mistakes and something you didn't anticipate. But if you can anticipate as much as possible, you come in a lot less stressed out than if, you know, you're looking at the first rollover and you're like, your visualization wasn't quite there and you're not really sure where you need to be. Um, so it's huge, you know, being able to know what's happening ahead of time. Yeah, I love that. And one thing I like to always remind the athletes I work with when it comes to imagery and visualization is that it's not just about visualizing what the perfect race or competition or shift would look like. There's a lot of benefit to visualizing things that could go wrong and how you would optimally respond. Is that something that you incorporate into your routines? Totally, totally. So when I look at when I look at a lot of tracks, I'm looking at, you know, your best case possible line. And then you're always kind of looking out into like, if I, if I make a mistake, if I run this gate too deep, I'm going to be down there. How am I going to recover from being down there? Um, So you're always looking like you're checking the snow conditions, not as much in your race line uh, and kind of over where, you know, if you do screw up, that's where you're going to be. So like little things like that, knowing that there's still surface over there and that you won't have to panic. Or if you're going to come and as soon as you cross that die line, there's going to be a wall of, kind of cement like super crappy snow from slipping over the days and stuff like that and just kind of having an idea and planning on you know maybe things aren't good if I come in here faster than 
than I think I'm gonna, like I could end up over here. How do we recover? And a lot of it just has to do with, um, you know, miles training beforehand, you do it in training over and over again. And that's the kind of the best way to train is make as many mistakes as, as you can to learn from them. So when you, yeah. <laughs> when you do kind of make a mistake in a, in an event that you're super excited about or passionate about, it's, you're kind of ready. So you kind of, you never, you never have a perfect run. Like I, I, I don't think I have yet. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, you were kind of just, yeah, yeah. One day, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I can come through a finish line one day and just be like, that was it. That's the one. Yeah. But, um, you know, things don't always go to plan. So, you know, if you plan for, for not always going to plan, at least you have a little reassurance in the back of your head that you did, you did check into kind of the, all the kind of possible scenarios and what ifs so that you're ready for when it comes down to, you know, you do making a mistake. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And, um, and that even just speaks to the value of making mistakes, like, like you're talking about, like mistakes are our greatest tool for learning, but it's just a matter of our willingness to engage with these mistakes and actually learn from them instead of maybe just ignoring them and pushing them to the side. So I, I really appreciate you mentioning that. Um, well, Mac, I'm, I'm conscious of your time and I really appreciate you coming on the, on the podcast today. If there are any aspiring Paralympians listening to this podcast, what is one piece of advice that you would give them? Uh, I'd just say continue to have fun. Um, you know, everyone's in a sport for a reason. And it's and it's usually when you get down to the roots of it, it's because you started it and you started having fun. And if you're having fun, then things will kind of fall in place. Um, continue to train hard and enjoy, enjoy what you're doing. It'll keep things light and you'll have a lot. A lot more fun of a career great thank you well mac again i appreciate your time it's been a it's been a ton of fun learning more about your experiences and how you've leveraged mental skills to help you become one of the elite in your sport so thank you hey yeah thanks taylor thanks for having me what an absolute treat that was one more big thank you goes out to mac for joining me for today's episode episode 53 of the mental dive podcast Listen, if you're an athlete out there and you're interested in learning how you can improve on your mental performance in areas like confidence, resiliency, mental toughness, focus, you name it, please do feel free to reach out. Reach out to me, Instagram, Twitter, at Taylor Staden, that's at T-A-Y-L-O-R-S-T-A-D-E-N, or you can email me at taylorstaden1 at gmail.com. I'll include all that information in the description of the episode for easy access. Well, everybody, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I'm looking forward to sharing another one with you next Monday. See you then.